Um, we've been going through, this is week two of looking at the Holy Spirit and His activity today. We've taken a pause in the book of Galatians, um, strictly because Paul just started talking about what it looks like to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We felt like this was a good time to detour for a few weeks. Um, so if you have a Bible or an app that you're using, turn, I'll give you a choice. You can either turn to Acts 2 or 1 Corinthians 13. Wherever you go is up to you. How about that? We're going to use both. Um, they're both going to lift about an equal amount of weight. They're both going to do a really good job of showing us Jesus more clearly. Um, and as you're turning to one of those passages, or even both, just to give you a little bit of insight to where I come from, I guess at least genetically, uh, is my, my mom, she's a brilliant, powerful woman, really smart woman. We're always telling her she needs to go on Jeopardy, just real smart. She grew up smoking hippie um, from San Francisco back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So Haight-Ashbury is where she came from. So whenever you see movies where you see these young women in bell bottoms um, burning their bras and protesting and handing out flyers, that's my mom right there, right? My dad is this um, redneck out of West Texas, out of a little town called Big Spring. Anyone ever hear of Big Spring? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple of you. That's it. The ones who aren't lying. Or... Yeah, so Big Springs, this little, little town. And uh, he played sports all year round. Real diligent, kind of a militant guy. Also very brilliant, entrepreneurially smart. I mean, he's just a great guy. He rocked a crew cut all through his young years. And then when he went into the military, they didn't even require he change his haircut because he just did it. always had a military-style haircut. Um, so these two people should have never met, right? The only time in the universe that we live in that people like that meet is when people like my dad are setting up barricades to keep people like my mom away from government buildings, right? But they did meet. They met on a blind date, and they fell in love, um, and it's been a great story ever since, and they've been married for more than 40 years now. Now, whenever they first got married, they brought a lot of their influences upon the other person, which is what we all do whenever we get married. My mom brought pot smoking to my dad. My dad was like, yeah, this is great. My dad brought the Dallas Cowboys to my mom, and she thought, hey, I like football. And to this day, you know, they both watch Cowboys games. And so you see these effects on each other from the other person. All right, y'all are wondering if my parents still smoke weed, aren't you? That's what you're asking. <laughs> Uh, also, part of what they brought to the other person were so many differences because of where they came from that it sparked a lot of fights. A lot of pretty aggressive ones, too. A lot of loud ones. The word divorce was used a lot because of the effects of what they used to know and how they brought it into a marriage, which is what a lot of us kind of experience when we get married. But then I saw them get radically saved. I was able to see that. I was in junior high, we call it middle school out here. I was in middle school, came home from football practice and saw my parents with the pastor who was doing visitation. And uh, he knelt down on his knees with both my parents at the same time, right there at the coffee table. And they, re they asked Jesus to be king in their life. And, I, and from that point on, I saw just this transformation, right? Where now the differences that they brought in their makeup and their DNA it didn't just bring sin, and it didn't just bring recreation to each other, but it actually started making each other holier. I mean, there were some blessings in how they were put together that helped the other. They started growing next to each other. Now, I begin with this little tale um, on my parents, because what we're talking about today involves two camps of believers that are just as far apart, really, relationally even, as my mom and my dad were, right? Um, the barricade between these two camps of believers that I'm talking about are the extravagant, miraculous, revelatory gifts, right? Now, I have to be careful when I use these terms, and I actually need to kind of inform you a little bit. I, I, I think all gifts of the Holy Spirit are miraculous, right? I think any time the Holy Spirit enables us to do something beyond our capacity, I think that's a miracle, right? If you're good at Excel spreadsheets, and you're a kingly administrator, and you can do that beyond your own capacity to bless the kingdom of God and reflect his glory, that's a miracle, friend. That's a miracle. But I'd like to narrow the definition a little bit and talk about the ones that are what we would consider miraculous. 
And I even used the word revelatory because that kind of shows us what kind of gifts I would like to talk about today and how we slip on either side of the barricade. Um, revelatory, meaning that God reveals something to us. So think of prophecy, right? Where someone speaks a word as a herald from God. Think of tongues, interpretation of tongues, dreams, visions. I would even throw healing in there, even though that's not so much a revelatory gift. It is one of these extravagant, miraculous gifts that I'm talking about, right? That where you fall with these gifts decides which side of this barricade that we naturally kind of find ourselves in. Some of you might be like how I grew up, which I would call charismatic. I know the new word here recently is continuationist. I guess charismatic is kind of an ugly word right now. I'm actually okay being considered a charismatic. It doesn't really bother me very much, but continuationist is a word that's kind of thrown in there. And these are, these are people on one side of the barricade that seem to believe that these revelatory, miraculous gifts still continue today, just as they did back in the days of the ancient church. And on the other side, you have a group called the cessationists, right? Now, these are big words. Probably won't use them all the time. But th- th- this is a group that believes that those have stopped at some point in history. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, but today... I want you to address your heart's desire, because as we talked last week, we talked about dropping our filters, didn't we? Last week we talked about how when we approach God, we don't really approach God as a blank slate. We're not really neutral. We have the accumulation of a lifetime we bring to bear, and it builds this filter in where we see God. So last week I asked you to put that filter down, and this week I'm going to ask you to do the same thing, because none of us are neutral. And I know some of you right now are thinking, I am, I'm neutral. Luke, I'm neutral, I know exactly where I'm at. I'm in between both camps because I can see the harm and the danger in both, and I'm right in the middle, so I, I'm, I am neutral. You're not. I'm here to tell you that you're not. And you do find yourself slipping more peacefully and familiarly with one group than you do another. Here's, here's a litmus test for you <clears throat> to determine where you're at. It's a true story, right? True story, I think I was a Christian for maybe 18 months or 12 months, And I found myself in this great church, this great, great charismatic church. I grew like a weed. I couldn't read enough. I couldn't pray enough. I couldn't be in enough things. Dave and Amy actually were in the same church. It was quickly becoming a mega church. It was growing, a lot of excitement, a lot of energy, right? I just wanted my family to experience the same thing. But they didn't go to a charismatic church. They went to a cessationist church. So they weren't having it. They weren't going to come. They weren't going to come and check it out. But my brother... <clears throat> he did. I don't know if he lost a bet or if I just became a good salesman, but he showed up one day. And he's two years, my junior, very smart, very conservative. And I remember sitting with him right in the middle of this congregation because I wanted him to catch everything in stereo. I wanted him to get the full effect. I mean, this was my one shot, probably never come back, right? So he showed up. I went to the bathroom for what, or went to the back for whatever reason. And when I came back in the auditorium, Worship was just blasting. It was this cool song. I remember going, yeah, I'm so glad they played that song today. You know how we do? Y'all do it too. I'm so glad they played that song today. I'm just soaking it in. Oh, God, you're so good. My brother's going to convert and be a charismatic like me. It's going to be awesome. And as I'm taking it in and as I'm watching, I see this singular arm stick in the air right around where my brother sits. Because I can see him. He's taller than everyone by about six inches. He's a big blonde-headed athlete. And I'm looking, and I see him right in the middle. And I see this real close to him. His arm go up, and it's got a tambourine in it. Right? And it wasn't just a tambourine, but it had streamers all over it, meant to elicit not just sound but sight. It was made to get attention. And she's going nuts. And I thought, no, no. This, she's never been here before, you know? Tambourine. Why is that there? Who's letting us? Don't we have like bouncers or something? You know, I'm getting all frustrated. I'm mad and I'm... Ex- <laughs> and then I start hoping and wishing. Maybe she, you know, depth perception. Maybe she's behind my brother. He can hear it fine, but I hope he doesn't see that. But the more I get to look in, as I get a better perspective, she's not just behind him. She's right next to him. And she's not... She's not being like you, you know, we have seat area. We have area, you know, you can get a little of this going on in worship, but you're not really leaving this area, you know what I'm saying? She was straight up leaving that area, and she was just kind of getting into it, and I could see my brother kind of nudging a little bit, you know, and that's because she's bumping into him. He never came back again, right? (laughs) Tambourine lady. Now, the reason I tell that story, it's true, the reason I tell that is because I did something to each of you. Some of you, I'd say probably most of you, 
felt like I did. And you thought, that's just awkward and weird. And man, I knew it. That Holy Ghost stuff. I mean, that's just weird stuff. That's why I don't like to bring people to some churches. And, 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 and a feeling of maybe not being so healthy probably came up in you a little bit, right? And then some of you were wondering when exactly the story was going to get weird. Some of you are reaching into your bag right now to get your tambourine, thinking, is that safe here? Can I get my tambourine here? <laughs> and you cannot, right? This is a tambourine-free zone. Up here, you can do it. You've got to see Chase after the service for auditions. But out there, we're tambourine-free. But how that story made you feel places you on one of the sides of this controversy. Your heart is just going to feel more familiar with one camp than it is another. That's okay. It's just the way we are. It's just the way we are. So last week, we looked at filters. Next week, we're going to talk about, we're going to start, it'll probably take us two weeks, we're going to start talking about the spiritual gifts individually, right? Now, not all of them, because in the New Testament, there's over 22 of them listed in different places. Um, Some of them will group together the obvious ones we won't spend as much time on, um, but we are going to spend time with each individual gift as much as we can, because I want to see, and I want you to see how they work. I mean, really work. I mean, real-life examples where we see it in the Bible, what it says about Jesus, what it looks like in relation to the gospel, right? How it can be unhealthy, how it can be an abuse, how, what it looks like when you have it. How does it fit into the community? I'd like to look at these because as we talk through them, for some of you, your radar is going to go off. Some of it's going to resound to you. That's going to be healthy for us as a church. So we're going to look at that. But this week, today, I'd like to set up some guardrails for us as we go forward as a church. Guardrails, a lot of times charismatics don't like words like guardrails because it means quenching and hemming in and restricting, right? But I'm thinking guardrails to keep the car from going off the highway and a burning crash, you know, where everyone dies. Those kinds of guardrails. So think more life and not death, okay? That's where we're going. Because Paul shows us very clearly how to keep a church healthy when it comes to spiritual gifts. Paul shows us what it looks like whenever it gets not so healthy. He uses two churches, I feel like, as a good description. One of them is Corinth, and the other one is Thessalonica. All right? Great churches. Fantastic churches that he loves, he's excited about, and that he planted. Right? Fantastic churches. But they mishandled the spiritual gifts a little bit. And if you were in Corinth, it would be real easy for you to make a name for yourself if you had one of these revelatory, powerful, miraculous gifts because you were elevated among the menial gifts. You were put in places where you can do that even if it meant a detriment to the unity or even another believer. Even if it wasn't the most loving time and place to do it, you were allowed to do it because you were Corinthian and that was your gift and it was miraculous and it meant that you were a superstar. Paul had to deal with this. that's, That's why he says this in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. But in Thessalonica, there's a little bit of a different story, a little bit of an opposite kind of a church where you might be labeled reckless if you used what was considered a powerful, revelatory, miraculous gift, something like a healing or a prophecy. You, You might be labeled for that, right? You might catch yourself in a church like that seeing water thrown to quench out little situations that pop up that make people feel uncomfortable, that look a little strange, that might seem like they're coloring outside the boundaries a little bit. They take care of that. They make sure that wouldn't happen, right? We can relate to these two churches because we are them. We are Thessalonians here and we are Corinthians here, right? It's just the way we are. Last week we looked at the day of Pentecost a little bit, and I'm only bringing it up now because we're going to pick up where we left off. Last week we looked at the day itself and how it was this beautiful, unique day within the span of God's redemptive history. Not a day to be repeated every day, not a day to be a stamp for every single believer, but this was this unique time where God was going to show where everything would be different from now on. Where the Holy Spirit was going to behave differently than he would behaved in the past where the church was no longer going to look the same as it did in the Old Testament, and as it goes forward as a new covenant people, it's just going to be different. And so you had this moment where you had the sound of like a mighty rushing wind coming, which I'm sure got everyone's attention, and then flames showing up in the, in the air. I don't even know what that looked like, but separating and landing on top of people's heads, right? 
And then it just got crazier from then on. And so that's what I'd like to read. We're going to catch up with there in verse 12 of the second chapter of Acts. And all were amazed and perplexed, it says. Why? What's so strange? I mean, besides the wind and the fire. What's so strange? The fact that people were talking languages that they didn't know, right? I mean, if we were to pick some people in here that grew up in East Tennessee, like a Jeff or a Garrett, you know, if you guys just heard them speaking Japanese or German, you would be amazed and perplexed, would you not? It's not normal. It's a little weird. It's a little strange. So all the bystanders were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Which is what we would be asking. But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. They're drunk. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. He's like, come on. It's like the morning. No one's drunk yet. We haven't even had time to get drunk yet. It's in the morning. Can't be that. Verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Little piece of background information. This next little part is several hundred years old. Several hundred years. It wasn't like something Joel said last week. Joel's long been dead. Several hundred years earlier, God spoke this to Joel. Why? Thinking of this day. These words are coming out of Joel's mouth. I mean, catch this. Hundreds of years earlier, thinking about this day. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those last days, I will pour out my spirits, and they shall prophesy. All right, stop right there. So, we see that hundreds of years before Pentecost happened, God had plans on giving gifts to his people. But why? I mean, really, what's the purpose of them? Why, why would God do that? Why, I mean, think about it, just plainly. Why would God give gifts? You see, these disciples, they walked alongside Jesus for a few years, and they watched him do some pretty cool stuff. They watched him prophesy. They watched him heal, right? They watched him do some miraculous things. They saw some pretty nutso stuff. And every time he did something cool, it brought attention to him, and it reflected God's glory. Every single time he did that. And that's what those gifts are meant to do today, to draw attention to our king and to reflect God's glory. That's one of the big things it does. That's one of the big purposes of the gifts then. It's one of the big purposes of the gifts today. But it also does another thing. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 11. Do we have that? Is that going to be up on the screen? Ephesians 4? I made some switches. Yeah. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers Why did he give them? Why did he do this? To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. We're talking about people that have gifts to contribute. Why do they have gifts? To build up the church, to nurture the church. Our gifts are here to nurture the church, to build up the church around who Jesus is and what he has done, and to reflect God's glory. Not a whole lot has changed. Not a whole lot has changed as far as the purpose of gifts. They're not given to you so that you could look better than the person next to you. They're not given to you so that you could stand out in a crowd. They're not given to you so that you could hold on to and say, well, I always wondered if God loves me or if I'm good with God, but hey, he's given me this gift, so it must mean God's good with me. It's not something you can hold on to like that. It's not something that you make money off of. It's not any of those things. It's given to you to invest joyously, sacrificially, wisely, completely, thoughtfully, in the church, and those around you so that you can make Christ's legacy clear and reflect God's glory as you nurture and build the church around him. That's what they're for. It's very simple, and it seems very basic. You might be asking yourself, where's the barricade? Where's the controversy? Because it seems basic. But listen, there are millions of Christians, millions of great Christians who love God, honorable men and women who are on mission centered around the gospel, doing a great job. Millions of Christians who believe that the more miraculous, revelatory gifts have stopped. 
that they no longer are part of the normal function of today. Even though they can happen in small instances, they are not normal and we're definitely not to seek them. That would be in that earlier camp that I defined as a cessation camp, right? Now, you would be talking about prophecy. You would be talking about tongues, interpretation of tongues, miraculous healings, all of those being at the top of the list. Some would even throw in things like casting out devils, right? Visions, dreams, stuff like that. They would even throw that in there as well, right? Now, these millions of people on that side of the barricade, they're very cool with the gifts of teaching, preaching, administration, evangelism. That's fine. But the freaky-deaky ones, no, not so much. Those have stopped. Those have stopped, right? So it bears, it bears asking the question and being honest with ourselves and looking at the Scripture and letting it interpret itself. How long do these gifts last? Are they still going? Which ones? Right? I mean, isn't that basic? We talked last week and a little bit this week about when they started. They started when you became a Christian. You were fully baptized in the Holy Spirit, not as a second occurrence, but when you became a Christian, which was helpful for some of you, I found out afterward. Right? And we don't have time to go back over that. If you weren't here and that is of interest, it'll be online. It's archived. Right? But what I'd like to do right now is not look at so much when they start, but look at when they end. We're building parameters. We're building guardrails, remember? All right? So I'm going to take you to a passage where all the collision happens, and you can decide for yourself what the Bible says. You get, listen, we talked last week about you developing and being responsible for your own theology. Now we can put it to test, right? So let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 8 is where we're going to jump in. You know, he's talking about gifts. He's talking to a church that's getting a little bit out of control with its gifting. Um, if this church existed, if Corinth existed today, we might look at it as a very, very unhealthy, charismatic church, right? That's where it would fit within our rubric today. And he says this in verse 8, love never ends. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And then he fleshes it out a little bit. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And here he ends almost as he starts. So now faith, hope, and love abide, but these three, but the greatest of these is love. This passage is talking about the temporary nature of spiritual gifts. No one disagrees with that. There's no controversy there. It is talking about when the scaffolding comes down, right? Gifts, spiritual gifts, to, to better illustrate it for you, it's scaffolding. Any of you have ever seen a big building or a house with a lot of scaffolding around it? The owners don't intend on it staying that way. As soon as the work is done, it comes down. Just like here, whenever our work is done, the scaffolding comes down, right? No one disagrees with that. So this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, but love is not a part of that scaffolding. Love permeates. Love continues. It's not imperfect like the gifts. It is perfect. It is unlike the gifts. That is the context of this passage. Both sides of the barricade agree on this. The only disagreement in this passage is when it goes to verse 10 and it says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. That's where the disagreement is, is what that means, the perfect. What is the perfect? Many brilliant God-fearing men and women they see perfect in verse 10 to mean one of three things. So I'm going to give you their position. And I'm not going to tell you which one most of them believe or anything like that. I think it's probably an assortment. But some see the perfect to mean whenever the apostles died, the original ones, to see whenever the Gentiles came into the church to finish the church, or to see when the Bible was finished, when it was canonized and completed. That would typify what the perfect means. But at some point, it could be one of those, three of these, two of those, but it was some point in the past. Some point in the past, not today, right? That's what that view looks at. That's how it reads that. So imagine the miraculous gifts. In their view, they would, they, and I've heard them say this, and I used to be a cessationist, and I would preach this as well. 
right? Where it was more like rocket boosters on a shuttle. You've seen how the rocket boosters are on the shuttle. The shuttle gets up in the air. It needs the rocket boosters. It gets into space. It jettisons those rocket boosters. Why? Because it doesn't need it anymore. It doesn't need the propulsion, right? They were helpful, but then when they suit their purpose, they, they just go away. There is no, to my knowledge, I've not met a credible cessationist pastor, teacher, believer that looks down on the miraculous revelatory gifts. In their defense, they don't. They just see it as a place and a time set in the past, not in today. They would have expected that in the ancient church, but it's not something to be expected today. That's their view. So I did the best I could in giving that view very quickly, but I will say as a church and as a group of believers, we don't believe that. We believe that when the perfect comes in verse 10, that does mean when Jesus comes back on a cool white horse to end it all. We believe that's when the work is done and that's when the scaffolding comes down. When Jesus comes back and says it's over. When he comes back and symbolizes with his appearance that it is over. Taking the scaffolding down before that happened, that's that's not in view here. That's when we're going to see when we don't need the gifts any longer. He says this in verse 12. This is important. Catch this in verse 12. Where he says that this will be a time when we see face to face. Face to face. Right? That's in the Old Testament several times. You hear Moses saying things like that, how he saw God face to face. You hear Jacob saying things like that, I saw God face to face. Gideon said, I've witnessed the angel of the Lord face to face. But friends, I haven't seen God like Moses has seen God. I've not wrestled with God or a prefigure of Christ like Jacob did. I've not done that. I didn't do that as soon as the Bible was finished. None of that happened to me. It also says this, This is knowing as we have fully been known. That doesn't mean knowing everything that God knows, by the way. All right? and We're never going to know everything that God knows. I mean, whether he tells you how the pyramids were made or who shot JFK, that's whatever. All this means is, all this means is, is that you know how you look in God's eyes like he sees you now. You know your relationship to God as he views it now. How God sees you, your proximity to him, your station before him, and his glory is revealed to you fully. That's what it means. But these things haven't happened yet. They haven't happened yet. Why? Because he hasn't come back yet. He hasn't come back. In fact, I would say that the gifts end in glory. They end in glory. Paul shows us in that verse in Corinthians that they even point to glory. Why will prophecies not be needed anymore? Because when Jesus comes back, we'll just listen to him. If someone says, in, in the end times, i got a prophecy for you, I'll just go and listen to Jesus say it. We won't really need a, her- a herald or a courier or some special person with a special gifting to carry a message from someone who's just right there. What about knowledge? Will we need a special gift of knowledge? No, because you will know as you've fully been known. That's what this means. What about tongues? Will we need tongues anymore? Nope. Why? Because we will all speak, we'll all be speaking the same spiritual language the same unified language where we all understand each other, just like the first language before sin. Before sin entered the world, there was one language. After God reverses sin, there will be one language. This is why those gifts are imperfect and why it's scaffolding and it will fall away. Right? Ephesians 4.11, we get another good look at this. <clears throat> and he gave the apostles, we just read this not too long ago, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until when? He gives a finish point right here. Until when? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, which we have not done, and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, which we have not done, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. None of that has happened. None of that has happened. I don't think very many people would disagree with that statement, that we have not attained unity, knowledge, faith, to the stature and the manhood of Jesus Christ himself. I don't think that's happened. In fact, if you look right past that, verse 14, he's given these roles to build up the church. Why? Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, which we are, tossed to and fro, which we are, by the waves and carried about by every doctrine, which we are, by human cunning, which we have, by craftiness, which we have, and deceitful schemes, which we do. We need those gifts because we are still a mess. We need those gifts because the church needs to grow. We need those gifts because that's God's design until he returns. It's pretty clear. We need them now to equip the church, to enjoy God, to glorify him, and to reach his city. Listen, I don't want to make this mistake 
um, that I used to make and that many make today, that whenever we look at the church in the ancient Bible, we look at Acts Church, and we say, oh yeah, but the church needed gifts back then. It doesn't need it now. Listen, it was a struggling little enterprise that needed to get off the ground. So it needed gifts to verify itself. It needed gifts to kind of like get over the hump. But folks, it's not like a Chick-fil-A or some restaurant that hands out coupons until the business really gets going and then they cut the coupons. The church was never going to struggle like that. It's empowered by the gospel. It has the power of life in its own message. It wasn't built on gifts. It was built on the back of Jesus. We're not beyond this need for God's spirit to equip and nurture the church. I get, listen, and I get it. I know Rome was tough, and I know they needed the gospel, and they needed gifts alongside the God. I know that. I know Rome was tough. It was a tough place to plant churches back then. Try Pakistan and North Korea now. <laughs> Try Iraq now. Did it get less tough? I mean, did I miss something? Is it easy now to plant churches and see the church grow? Do we not need gifts anymore? Listen, if we ever needed it back then for the same reason we need it now, martyrs are still dying, pagan governments are still persecuting. If they needed gifts then for that reason specifically, we need the gifts now for the same reason if that's the argument, right? We need God's gifts. We need all of them. I've not been in too many positions where prophecy and healing would not have been very helpful. I'm just speaking honestly as a church planner. To have that available. In fact, I've not, I'm not a mystical person. I don't have any of the mystical, revelatory power gifts that we look at in the Bible and go, ooh, wow, that's kind of mystical. I don't have any of those. <clears throat> one time, one time I had what, I, the best I can tell is a word of knowledge, where I knew <clears throat> what God wanted to say to somebody, and I knew something about their past, and we'll get into this in the next couple weeks, w- without even knowing that person. So it was a little bit prof- prophetic, I guess. But I walked up to this person and just laid it out there, exercised this gift, this revelatory gift to the best I could, and the dude got saved. Pretty handy, I'm just going to say. He became a Christian that day. So I think we need it. And I understand where the hesitancy is for this where many of the Thessalonian-type people come from. And I used to be one. The ones who are really quick to quench the Spirit, the ones who are really quick to despise prophecy and need help not doing that. They need help there. I understand it because I flip the channels and I see the same abuses they do. I shudder inside just like they do. I hurt. I wish a lot of them would just get their show canceled. I wish they weren't on TV. I wish the same thing you do. But I can read. I can read, and this is what I see. And I have to be honest. I have to be honest with myself. The gifts exist until Jesus comes back, until he recreates everything in such a way that imperfect gifts are no longer necessary. So as we continue, I had to set that down, but as we continue to set up guardrails, and I do the best I can to show you when spiritual gifts start, and I do the best I can to show you when spiritual gifts stop, just to look at the lane in which we drive in, the context, I will say it's community. Gifts are meant in community. Community. Let's look at this in 1 Corinthians 12. So if you're already in Corinthians, you could just flip over one page. 12 verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That means all of you, by the way. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish spirits, to another various kinds of tongues. To, I mean, he's being exhaustive here on purpose, is he not? To another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one in the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as who wills. Not as we will, as he wills. As he wills. Now hear this. This is where he punches. For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Listen, last week we talked about how gifts start looking goofy, and they stop making sense when they stop pointing to Jesus. When gifts stop pointing to Jesus, they become very useless. But listen, gifts outside of community, that's also an abuse. That, That also looks goofy. It's also misplaced. 
To try and operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit in isolation is just as much an abuse of the gifts of the Spirit as anything. I'll tell you, as a continuationist or as a charismatic, however you want to label me, I've seen people in the past with such a high level of gifting, such a high level of gifting that they become super church. They seem above the need of the church. They seem like they can't come under a pastoral care or service. They are outside the church. And that's hard. We've had them come in here. We've seen them leave just as fast, right? They come in complete with their business card of what gifting they have. They have to self-announce because there's no one behind them that can really point and verify what their gifting is. They go from church to church. They talk about how wildly God has blessed them, right? Their spouse is their only fan. Some book they self-published, I tell you, when we bump into people like that, we go DEFCON 4 really fast. We have to be careful. We have to be very careful. And I'm not going to say this is the only reason, but let me just tell you real quick as a side note, this is a big reason, a big reason. We don't have open mic night. We don't have open mic night. Now, listen, when I say that, the mic is available. When I say mic, I don't mean the ability to be produced on speakers. I mean the ability to talk to a group, to steer a crowd. We, we would consider this mic time, right? It's available, but it's only available to people that are in partnership, that are in community, that we can vouch for, that are healthy, that we can vouch for their gifting and know them to love the church and want to serve the church. <clears throat> if they don't have that, folks, you're not touching the mic. Not because we don't love you or believe you or don't want to get to know you, but we have a church to care for. We have a church to care for. But Luke, that's just restricting the Holy Spirit when you do that. If it's just the same people on the mic all the time, it's restricting the Holy Spirit. But I don't see anywhere in the Bible where the Holy Spirit makes a circus of confusion out of gatherings. I don't see that. The Holy Spirit's not about folks operating in the gifts of the Spirit outside of context. There is a context for gifts. Sometimes the most Holy Spirit thing we can do as a church is tell a heavily gifted person, no. Sometimes that's the best way we can honor the Holy Spirit is to say no, or not right now. Or listen, friend, we don't know you. We need to get to know you first. Whatever we need to say. But the local church is the setting for healthy gifts to be stewarded and practiced. Stewarded and practiced. This is your lab. This is your gym, your workout room. This is the shop. This is where you practice those things that God has given you. And as we start trekking through the different spiritual gifts, some are going to pop up on your radar. And when they do, and I will repeat myself, understand the context for working that out is here. It's in community. It's important for us. I mean, gifts can be practiced. Gifts can be practiced. I did some real rough math the other day. I am somewhere between 850 and 1,000 sermons preached. Somewhere. Right? That's over seven or 8,000 hours of prep time. And just for those sermons. Now, the first time I did it, I remember vividly. And I think I wet my pants, right? At least a little bit. It's not the same. And I hope to be better in the future. But as a communicator, if it is a gift on me that God has given, I know I can practice it. I've been practicing it every week. That's the way it is with gifts. And I will say this. To not seek and to not steward a gift in the church that God has given you is also an abuse of the Holy Spirit's gifts. Let me repeat myself. If you have a spiritual gift that God has given you to contribute, and you're like keeping that in the box, you're not even unpacking your gift, if you're keeping it close to the vest and tucking it away, that is also an abuse of the Holy Spirit. We talk about, and we did in the partnership class this morning, how we steward our time, our talent, and our treasure. Now that word talent is a sloppy word for, tre- or for, for gifting, okay? Because there's a difference between talent and gift. Like, hey, I can juggle. That's not really a spiritual gift. That's a talent you develop because you went to the library and rented a book on how to juggle, right? You can do card tricks. That's probably not Holy Spirit empowered. Maybe not. It's probably just a talent. There is a subtle difference between talents and gifts, and we can get into that if you want it in the next two weeks. But what I'm saying here is we don't just invest our time. We don't just invest our treasure We contribute God's gifting to each other because we're formed as a body. To neglect that and just to show up, just to show up without any striving or or, or any understanding that I have to contribute what God has given me to contribute, that's an abuse. That's as bad as Benny Hinn. That's just as bad as Benny Hinn. i got to move on. Because we can scan the horizon for abuse 
and spiritual gifts, but we got to look in the mirror too. Got to look in the mirror too, because I think some of us abuse it. And I know how it is. We look up on the stage and we see the gifted people. We see, we see Jeff on the drums. We see Charlie singing. We see these people and we think, yeah, but, but they're gifted. They're gifted to do that stuff. All I can do is warm a plastic seat, show up, sign up for some calendars, volunteer every now and then. And that's kind of where we find ourselves. This is what Paul says to you, though, in verse 15. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would make it or that would not make it any less a part of the body. That's talking about you. That's talking about you. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. That's the second time he said that now. If all were a single member, where would the body be? I mean, it's, he's just being overly repetitive and redundant here. That's for effect. That's for effect. Why? Because he's talking to a church that all they want to do is be ears. All they want to do is be eyes. And if they can't be an eye, they don't see any value in what they can contribute, so they don't contribute anything. And then you have this amorphous body that looks weird. That's what's going on in this passage. Whenever you hold your gifting close to the vest, the church is weaker. The church is weaker. Legacy limps. The church universal limps. The church is weaker whenever you hold back. That's not just hurting you, friend. It's not, it's not all about you. It's not about you. It's about the health of the church as well, right? So we need to see that. Here's some concerns I have, because I've got to move on. We're going to be done in just a minute. These are the concerns I have for our church here. Because, and I say this because, I cannot, com- I cannot cure this controversy for the entire church in America. But I could do the best job I can right now with this one, with this church. Okay? Concerns I have for legacy is us looking over the side of the barricade and deciding that we are not going to do or not going to do deeply life with someone that is a Thessalonian or a Corinthian. That's a concern of mine. That it's too easy for us to look across and say, I don't need that person. We don't need that person. They're, they're so different. And we do this. Some of us, we judge the crazy Corinthians. I know I can sometimes. We don't need the crazy charismatic stuff around here. We don't need that. We don't need that. It's just too much madness. We're going to leave and go find a church that looks more like us. Whatever that means. Hey, there's no church that looks just like you. There might be churches that look like you want to look. But there's no such thing as a church that looks like us. Right? Something I've appreciated about the crazy Corinthians, something I've appreciated over time, they have a high level of expectancy. Any minute, God could blow up on the scene and change things historically. Any minute could be that. I, when I was like that, I'd walk into a bar or the gym and think, yeah, who's the lucky one today? Holy Spirit's going to come and change some lives. I'm ready. Just speak to me, God. Just speak to me. How, are, you, are you all doing that that I know of? That's a beautiful thing for the church. There's also this intense and insane desire to know where you fit into the body, to know your place. Am I a foot? I don't know. Can I take a bunch of tests and read a bunch of books to tell me if I'm a foot or a hand or an ear or an eye? Just want to know where we fit in. How can I contribute? Some good things I like about that, to be honest with you. Some of us judge the disobedient Thessalonians. We don't need any of that stuff, that unbelieving stuff around us. We're going to go leave this church and go find a church that looks a little bit like us, which is a little scary. Let me tell you some things I've appreciated about crazy Thessalonians. They have an insane desire to protect the word at all costs, to protect and guard the image of the church, to make sure that the idea and the view of God is clear, to make sure it doesn't get wonky in any direction. I think of sentries and guards it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Some things, I mean, listen, I'm sad over the worst version of each position. I'm very excited about the best side of each position. Very excited. Let me ask you as we talk about this one specific point, can you let the gospel unite you intimately with someone that might be a little too Thessalonian for you or might be a little too Corinthian for your taste? And can you do that? Because you know, you know the, the idea of the gospel is that it reconciles enemies. <clears throat> 
in the gospel, in the gospel of God, we're not just a nuisance to God. We didn't just get on his nerves. He's not just tolerating us now. We were enemies who declared war. We were rebels who were throwing rocks, casting aspersions, and yes, nailing a king to a cross. That was an act of war from the position of mankind. We hate God. We war against God at all times. So whenever God came to earth as a man in Jesus, he became what kind of an offering? A peace offering. A peace offering. To reconcile what? The Hatfields and the McCoys? To reconcile, you know, people that just didn't like each other or weren't comfortable? No, friend, we're much further than that. We're aggressive killer rebels. He reconciled haters to lovers and family. Let that be a model to us. I can do life with a little bit of a crazy Corinthian from time to time, or, or, or a Thessalonian who's quenching and despising and quenching and despising. I can do that because God has crossed a bigger gulf to make me a friend and family. So can we do this as a church? Because when the church is growing to grow, you're going to get more people in here who are very Thessalonian. You'll see it like that. Very Corinthian, you're going to see it even faster. Can you do life? Or are you just going to do this and move on to someone that looks like you? This is a concern of mine here. It's a concern. It's just so easy to act like the other side is messed up and full of air, like they eat baby seals or something, and we don't need to have anything to do with them, you know? They're just like you. They just abuse the Holy Spirit a little differently than you do, right? Another concern that I have here, especially for us, and maybe this is because I am a little bit of a charismatic, is we have already as a church slipped a little bit more towards a Thessalonian load. We look a, bit, we look a little bit more Thessalonian. We don't look so Corinthian, right? That's not so bad in some ways. I understand that. We are slanted. And I think part of that is because of the part of the country we're in, partly. Um, because tradition, it, 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 it informs and infuses so much of how we grow up believing things. And this is kind of known for that. It's not... Well, I guess it's known for both, but that's what I've been seeing, having planted in other places. I don't exactly know, but I'll be honest with you. I don't really feel like anything will ever get out of control here. I don't. Nothing's ever gotten out of control in our big, long history. I don't think anything's really good. I mean, we have snipers posted in some pretty key areas and some razor wires set up. Nothing weird is going to embarrass you in front of your friends. I feel pretty confident in that. One thing I don't feel so confident in is that the Holy Spirit would be totally honored if he did something uncomfortable in here. I don't know if I feel confident there. Because believe me, friends, he does things that are uncomfortable. doesn't do things that are out of control. He does things that are uncomfortable all the time. Whenever you're moving out of your comfort zone to do something that you have not exercised very much to contribute to someone to glorify God, you should get butterflies in your stomach a little bit. It might make you just a little bit uncomfortable. Okay? See, everyone in this room is tempted to abuse God's gifts. Everyone. Flesh demands abuse. Flesh demands abuse. We either abuse gifts for our glory or we ignore them for our glory. And this makes sense because gifts are meant to point to God. And our flesh doesn't like that. Our flesh doesn't like that. So let me ask you, because we're finishing, what about... Jesus and his work is not good enough for you. What are you not satisfied with to the point where you are abusing God's gifts to get something that he has already given you? Let me ask it in another way. Some of you, you might be looking for image. Just because the image of being buried in Christ because of what God has done is just not good enough for you. So you're going to provide your own image. And you can either do that by elevating yourself through gift abuse or staying in the comfort zone. And not being known as that weird person because of gift abuse. Both of them are abuse and both of them are a gospel issue. You see, your failures and and gifts, those those are gospel failures. Those aren't spiritual gift failures. It's where you're not sufficiently and adequately satisfied with what God has done. You're still trying to get stuff from mankind. And when we abuse gifts, that's, that's what's happening. What about God's glory? If we're not satisfied with God's glory, we will try to get it ourselves. And you end up with a very Corinthian church very fast, right? That's a gospel failure. When you see crazy charismatic churches or you see something crazy on TV, friends, that's a gospel issue. At its core, trace it back, that's a gospel issue. About comfort. 
Some of us, we try to get comfort from each other because the comfort that God has won us through Jesus and this new resting place we have where we don't have to work anymore for salvation, this new Sabbath, it's not good enough. So we got to get more comfort. How do we do that? We do not, do not exercise any gifts that God has given us. We stay in the dark places back in the shadows. We don't ever unpack the box. God might have given us gifts, but no one's ever going to know. That is an abuse. That's an abuse, and it's a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. What is your heart grabbing for that God has already given? Right? Because if you repent for blowing others up and making sure that your gift is known and making sure that you are known as that person, if, if that's the, and listen, yeah, you need to repent for blowing up others because you don't know how to handle a gift and for being a little Corinthian, but you also need to repent for not seeing God as glorious, not being satisfied with the image he's given you. You need to repent for that as well. You need to take a good look at that, right? Same thing with the other side. If you repent from hoarding your gifts for whatever reason, usually discomfort, but if you repent for that, also look at why you don't believe that God was sufficient and the comfort that he has already won you and the image that he has already given you. These are things that you need to look at. Not just theologically what you, what you think about the gifts, but what do the gifts do to you? You find yourself on one side of that barricade or the other. What's it doing with your heart? Right? With your heart. So let me pray for you. <clears throat> I know this was long, and I know it was just a hair intense. The next two sermons most likely won't be that intense. But this is an intense thing. 85% of you have grown up in churches where no one ever even preaches in Acts 2. You get the first Corinthians and you kind of magically skip from chapter 11 to chapter 15 and no one says anything. I know because I grew up in a church like that. Okay? So I understand. So it's always iffy for a communicator or a public speaker to introduce a controversy that most people aren't talking about or don't even know about. But I feel confident with that here because I think most of you know about the controversy. Most of you grew up in it. So I felt like it was a worthy topic for us. Um, so you've seen the number up on the screen. If you have questions, text them in. And I will look at them um, backstage, and we'll try to answer as many as we can, okay? Well, go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to pray as the worship team comes up, and we're going to jump into this and worship God. But th- think about those questions I asked. I want you to consider the questions I asked, not just what you think about the spiritual gifts. I don't even really, I mean, if you want to think about what gift God has given you, that's fine. I want you to pay attention to your heart, though. Use this time to really square your shoulders.